How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you that your word gives us insight into your plans and purposes in history, that they give us an accurate portrayal of what took place in the past and what will take place in the future. And just as we can rely upon how you have described the past, we can also rely upon your description of the future. We thank you for the pictures that you have given us in history of your salvation and how your grace operates in delivering mankind from your judgment. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the events surrounding the worldwide flood of Noah's time, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and give us greater confidence in the accuracy of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we continue our study, or actually get into the details of the section we studied uh, last time. Last time we did an overview of the Toledot section. This is the third Toledot section in Genesis. Toledot being the Hebrew word that is translated generations or records, something along that line. Uh, periodically in Genesis, these give us the basic divisions of Genesis. Last time we looked at the fact or surveyed the fact that there are ten Toledotes in Genesis, and the third one begins in Genesis 6, 9. This is the genealogy of Noah, or this is the record of Noah. This is the record of Noah's descendants. This is what happened to Noah and his descendants. Now, the last verse, the previous section, is verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And actually, the word that is translated favor in the Hebrew is the word chen, C-H-E-N, and that's the word for grace. And it is a Hebrew idiom that so-and-so found favor in someone's eyes indicates that they are the recipient of that individual's grace or that individual's kindness. The word translated chen is is one of the several words used to communicate the idea of grace in the Old Testament. Now, the contrast is that in Genesis 6, 1 through 7, We have a picture of God's disfavor with mankind as a whole because of the angelic, actually demonic infiltration to destroy the genetic purity of the human race in order to prevent God from being able to complete his plan of salvation of sending a a Savior Messiah through the seed of the woman. It was an attempt by uh, Satan and the fallen angels to destroy the seed of the woman to make it impossible to have a truly human Savior or Messiah. And so that statement in Genesis 6-8 is really a statement of contrast with all the rest that has gone on, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then the next few verses carry out that contrast again, but in the next 
section in the next Toledot. We are reminded in Second Peter 2.5 that Noah was not only a believer, but he was an advancing believer. He, in Second Peter 2.5 says that God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Now, this is an important concept because even the New Testament emphasizes this fact of righteousness in association with Noah. Now, whenever we run into this concept of righteousness in the Bible, we have to ask an important question. Is this talking about positional righteousness or experiential righteousness? Is this talking about that which is imputed to man on the basis of Christ's work on the cross, or is this talking about the practical righteousness and behavior that is found in an individual as a result of their uh, learning the word, trusting God, applying it in their lives, and growing to spiritual maturity. And as we get into these verses of Genesis 7, 9 through 12, we will see that the emphasis here is on Noah and his positional righteousness. Not that he does not have uh, experiential righteousness or capacity righteousness, but the emphasis is not on him in terms of his spiritual maturity, but in terms of of his reception of imputed righteousness and we'll see that as we go through through these verses but he is a preacher of righteousness now this is from second peter 2 5 which means he is proclaiming the doctrine of justification by faith alone this is the most important thing for us to understand with relation to salvation and that is that we are not saved we do not uh, receive God's blessing because of anything that we do. Even after we're saved, you're never blessed by God because of what you do. That would be work salvation, works growth. We receive blessing from God because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Here's the believer or the unbeliever. He is minus R. And we know that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And at the point of faith alone in Christ alone, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, His perfect righteousness, divine righteousness, is imputed or credited to our account so that God never looks on our sin. He looks at us in terms of that perfect righteousness. The righteousness of God is His absolute standard. And the justice of God is the application of that standard. So when the righteousness of God looks down and sees the uh, his own righteousness that's been imputed to us, then the justice of God is free to bless us either in salvation or in post-salvation blessing. And this is what is happening in the life of Noah. Because he possesses uh, the imputation of righteousness, God is blessing him, and he and his family are the only ones who have that, and they are the only ones who are going to survive at least the flood. Now, we know that Methuselah was saved, others were saved, but the saved in that antediluvian generation would all die of natural causes before the flood would come. Now, we come to verse 9. At the beginning of this Toledot, this is the Toledot of Noah. These are the records or the genealogy of the generations of Noah. And I would translate this. This is what happened to the descendants of Noah. This is always the stands at the beginning of a section and is sort of the title of the next section, which is which extends down through the end of chapter 9. This is what happened to Noah. 
These are the records, or this is the Toledot of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So we have really two ideas here. Two ideas here. The first is the idea of Noah's positional righteousness, and the second is the idea of his experiential righteousness. Now, the one thing that causes Noah and his family to stand out isn't simply his possession of righteousness, because as I said, when Noah's born, Methuselah is alive. There are a number of other believers who are alive. What makes Noah stand out and the reason he is saved is because their line is not only not only are they believers, but there's no genetic corruption in that line from the infiltration of the sons of God, the demons of Genesis 6-3. So we have the first idea, Noah was a righteous man. Now, what does that mean? Noah was a righteous man. This is the Hebrew word, tzaddik. Tzaddik looks something like this in the Hebrew. T-Z-A-D-I-Q. This is the standard word for uh, righteousness. The standard word for righteousness. This is the adjective here, and it's used as a uh, as a, a nominative adjective. Tzaddik. If you add a hey on the end, it becomes uh, tzaddikah. And this is the noun for righteousness. Now, the word for righteousness means, uh, I mean, the word sadiq means uh, to be righteous, to meet the standard of God's character. It is applied to both God and to man. Now, when we look at the use of the word sadiq, um, the adjective or the noun, they're used only a few times. The adjective is used a couple of times in, in Genesis uh, in relationship to Noah. And then the next time we run into the noun is in uh, reference to Abraham. So that is a crucial thing to understand in terms of uh, the doctrine of imputation. So let's go to Genesis chapter 15. Verse 6, Genesis 15:6. It's always important. It's not always true, but it is most often true that if you want to understand how a word is used in the Old Testament, then you look at how it is used the first three or four times in the Bible. That is, well, and it's even true in the New Testament. How a word is used the first two or three times usually sets the parameters of its meaning. Now, if we were to ask the question, and we raise the question in Genesis uh, 6, if that's positional or experiential righteousness, then we would take a look at the other ways in which uh, tzaddik and tzaddikah are used in Genesis. So we shift to the next use, the first use of of the noun, and that's in Genesis 15, verse 6, where we're told, And Abraham, or Abram, believed in Yahweh, and he imputed it to him for righteousness. And this is a standard verse for uh, Abram's statement of his salvation. Now let's look at the context here. Because what, what you tend to do when you're reading through the English text is you think that this statement of verse 6 happens 
at this time in the chronology of Abram's life. But this, it's a, it's really a parenthetical statement. If we go back to verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now I want to stop there because I just noticed something in, in this verse after, that I want to point out in reference to our study on Christology on Sunday mornings. Remember, one of the key titles for Jesus Christ is the Logos, the Word. And here you have an interesting structure in Genesis 15:6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Now, does this mean the, a message came in a vision, or does this mean the person whose title is the Word appeared in a vision? And if you look at the context, what you see is that this word appears and says something. So it's not, shouldn't be understood that the message appeared to or came to Abram in a vision, but that the person known as the word, the Lagos, appeared to Abram in a vision. This is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing in a vision, and he speaks to Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. See, Abram is already saved at this point. He has already received righteousness at this point. He is not an unbeliever. And Abraham says, uh, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, look, you have, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir, blah, blah, blah. And then Abram believes him. God takes him outside, shows him all the stars in the heavens, and says, your descendants will be like all the stars of the heavens. And then we read, and he believed Yahweh, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. He believed Yahweh in, rep- in reference to this passage. To this promise right here that his descendants would be like, like the stars of the heavens? Or is it better to understand verse 6 as a parenthetical reminder that Abram had already believed in the Lord? And there we would have a perfect tense, uh, or, or a past tense, let's say a perfect in English, a perfect tense sense of the word. Now, I'm going to confuse you, and it is confusing, I understand that. But the verb here, for Abraham believed believed the Lord is in the is in the Hebrew perfect tense. Now the Hebrew only has two tenses. It has a perfect tense and it has an imperfect tense. And see, when we think of tense in English, we think of time because that is integral to the English concept of tense is time. They're, they're almost synonymous. But in many languages, time isn't even a factor with tense. It's what, what grammarians call aspect, whether it's completed action or incomplete action or ongoing action. And the completed action or the ongoing action can be past, present, or future, depending upon the context. And many times the Hebrew perfect tense emphasizes completed action in the future. It's called a prophetic perfect. It's talking about an event that's going to happen in the future as if it's already complete. It's so certain. But you also have the use of the, of the perfect, the Hebrew perfect tense, as something that has already happened in the past. And that is what you have here in Genesis 15, 6. 
and we should translate it, and Abram had already believed in Yahweh, and it had been accounted to him for righteousness. It is a reminder that at some point in the past, Abraham had trusted God and received the imputation of plus R, and because he had plus R, God was blessing him now with the promises of the and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the emphasis here is on positional righteousness, not experiential righteousness. And then we see the use of the term righteous again used several times in the 17th chapter or 18th chapter of of Genesis where there's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Genesis 18 verse 23 God has warned Abram that he's going to bring punishment on Sodom because of their sinfulness. And this is, of course, where Lot and his family now lives. And so Abraham, because he is grace-oriented, does not want God to destroy his own kin down in Sodom, no matter how much they may be in spiritual rebellion. And Lot was certainly not one who was walking with the Lord as Abraham was. He was not someone who was positive to doctrine. He is never pictured as such in the Scriptures. But Abraham asked the question of God in verse 23, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, Lot is not living a righteous life, but Lot's a believer, so he is positionally righteous. And so if you read down through... The rest of chapter 18, there is this contrast two or three times the word uh, righteous is used, and it is a contrast with the wicked. And there it becomes a synonym for those who are saved. So righteous there it indicates that which is received at the point of salvation. See, when we trust Christ as our Savior, let's go back to our previous chart, at that instant that we trust in Christ as our Savior, and God imputes to us perfect righteousness, when his righteousness sees that imputed righteousness, his justice declares us to be justified. This is a legal term. We are declared to be justified. It doesn't mean just as if I'd never sinned. It means that you are declared before the bar of justice, the Supreme Court of Heaven, that you are just, you are righteous. Uh, it is not as if you'd never sinned, that it belittles the whole concept of justification. And that's what it means that we're justified by faith alone, and we're not justified by works. Now this is, that, that this is the concept in Genesis at this point, righteousness by faith alone, and the imputation is emphasized in two other passages in the New Testament. The first is in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we know that Abram, was justified by faith alone. Even though Jesus Christ had not yet died on the cross, I believe this is a provisional righteousness, but nevertheless a real imputation of divine righteousness. This does not mean that the Old Testament saints were able to go directly into heaven when they died. They went into paradise until Christ actually paid the penalty for sins on the cross. But nevertheless, Old Testament saints are justified. Romans chapter 4, the first four verses are the foundational truth on this. Paul says, 
What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, that is, declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then it quotes Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him, or imputed to him, as righteousness. So the concept is imputation of righteousness in Genesis up through at least verse 17. You don't see a picture of experiential righteousness until you get into uh, the book of Exodus. You don't use tzaddik in the sense of experiential righteousness until you get into the book of Exodus. Now, one last New Testament passage, and this relates to Noah, is in, Gen- is in Hebrews 11. 7, Hebrews 11, 7. There we read, by faith, that is, by faith in the word. This is the faith in the sense of what is believed, not what, not the act of believing, but by faith in the promise of God. Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, he had not yet seen rain, and God tells him he's going to destroy the world by flood and rain, and this was something that was completely outside of Noah's experience. He had no idea what that was. He had never seen anything like that. Nobody he knew had ever seen anything like that. Yet God said that this was going to happen. And it would be just like somebody coming in here and say, well, it's going to corrob tomorrow, and, and when it corrobs, it's going to kill everybody. And you guys are looking at me like, what did you just say? What word was that? See, you don't know what that word means because you've never seen it before. So when God said it was going to rain, Noah probably you know, screwed up his face and went, what? Rain? Never heard that word before. What does that mean? And God had to tell him what was what, what it meant and what was going to happen. But he had no frame of reference. He had to take it by faith. He had to trust in God's word and not in his own frame of reference, his own experience, or his own reason. So by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which, that is the very act of building the ark, he condemned the world. This was a statement of their condemnation and a warning of judgment. He condemned the world and became what? An heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now, that what, what kind of righteousness are we talking about here? The righteousness which is by faith. This is positional Righteousness, justification, righteousness, righteousness at salvation. So when we come to our passage in, in Genesis 6-9 that states Noah was a righteous man, we must understand this in terms of positional righteousness and salvation, that he had responded to the grace of God, understood the gospel, that God would provide salvation through a future Messiah, the seed of the woman, and his faith alone was in Christ alone. He was a righteous man, and that's further defined as blameless in his time. And again, that term blameless in his time, it cannot be taken to be an experiential term. This is again a word that emphasizes, that emphasizes his, uh, experiential righteousness. It is the Greek word, I mean the Hebrew word, uh, Tamim, or in the singular, simply Tom. T-A-M. And it is a word that means to be complete, to be whole, to be blameless. It is a word that would mean a 
free of blemish if it was used of a sacrificial animal. Thus it emphasizes integrity, something that has uh, righteousness. It is used by God and uh, used of God who is perfect in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. So it is a synonym that is used appositionally in this sentence to explain what is meant by uh, righteous. He is perfect. He is considered uh, just before God, declared just because of the possession of a positional righteousness. But then we have not only the fact that he is positionally righteous, but he is experientially righteous. Noah walked with God just as Enoch walked with God. This is an expression of his spiritual life. This is what the writer of Hebrews talks about. It is by faith that Noah conducted his life. He did what God told him to do. He didn't just say, well, it's great, it's fine, I'm saved, I'm just going to go live my life the way I want to live it and do what I want to do. There's a lot of fun going on. Look at all these these people out here. The uh, corruption uh, really appeals to my sin nature, and I can, I, I'm can. i obviously saved, and I'm going to spend eternity in heaven, so I'm just going to live like I want to. He did not do that. He walked with God, and so he is not only positionally righteous, but he is experientially Righteous. Now in verse 10, we're told that Noah then became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now he gives birth to, fathers these three sons after the warning of the flood. These sons are all born after he's 500 years of age. These sons are all born in that last hundred years, and these three sons are going to be the three sons that will help him construct the ark and the three sons that will survive into the post-Diluvian world. We don't know if Adam had other sons and daughters, but we do know that it is only these three that are born after the warning that God gave that there would be 120 years before the judgment, that only in the last hundred years were, were they born. Um, so they were not alive prior to that, and they're under 100 years of age when they uh when, when the flood comes. In fact, uh, Shem is 98 when the flood's over, and it's two years after the flood that he gives birth to Arphaxad, and we'll see that when we get into the genealogies later on. So verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons after the warning. And then verses 11 and 12 give a description of the extent of the problem on the earth. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, so there's our standard. It's not corrupt in the sight of Noah. It's not corrupt in the sight of other people. It's not corrupt in the sight of the angels. It is corrupt in the sight of God. God has a righteous standard, and that is the standard by which everything is to be evaluated. If you do not have an external righteous standard, then you really don't have a standard at all. You can't come along and make any kind of universal statement. And I've said this before many times in many studies, that whenever you... Listen to unbelievers speak. They're immediately going to say, well, such and such is wrong, and we are going to have a battle on our hands in the next few years over this whole issue of sodomite marriage, this whole issue of whether you can have same-sex marriage, and there are so many warning clouds on the horizon there are judicial decisions being handed down in Canada and in other places where people who speak out against the evils of homosexuality are being brought up on 
on charges in courtrooms on the basis of hate law speech. And before long, the world is going to be drawing the battle lines, and anybody who takes a stand for an external absolute is going to be identified as the enemy. Well, this is the intolerance of modern tolerance. And the problem is that what they're screaming about is something that they believe is wrong. Well, to what are they appealing? To what standard are they appealing? How can they say that's wrong? You Christians, you're wrong. Well, according to whose standard? You know, according to your standard, everybody has a right to whatever standard they want to. You have your standard, we have our standard, but oh no, we can't have our standard. As long as, as our standard doesn't violate your standard, it's, it's okay. But if your standard violates our standard, then, then we've got to quit. But if your standard violates our standard, then we've got to, we've got to give up our standards for you. So it's not, there's no such thing as equality here. It is part of the cosmic system, and we are under attack. And, it is a, an attack on the very concept of moral absolutes and whether law is grounded in external moral reality or whether it is just a pragmatic consequence of human thought. And right here we see that the standard is the sight of God. The standard is his righteousness, his integrity. It is not the pragmatics of mankind. Now we're told that the earth here is corrupt. And the earth was corrupt, and the verb that is translated corrupt is the Hebrew verb shachat. The Hebrew verb shachat in the nifal stem. Now, Hebrew has about seven, or depends on if you, how, what, how many of the minor stems you want to uh, count. There's a pilpal, popal, and a couple of other minor stems that hardly ever show up. But the main stem is called the cow. Q-A-L, and this is roughly equivalent to the indicative mood of the, of the Greek. It is an active voice. The nephal is just simply the passive voice of the cow. I mean, it's just equivalent. So you have a, the cow's the active voice, the nephal's the passive voice, the P-A-L is the active intensive, the pu-al is the passive intensive, and, and so it goes. I heard somebody on some tape the other day, and he was making some big issue about the meaning of the nifal in contrast to the cow. And I know the individual. He doesn't know Hebrew. He didn't know what he was talking about. And unfortunately, the audience didn't know what he was talking about, but I was listening to him, and he made a fool of himself. So I think, you know, that's one of the problems today is people think they hear something and read something in some grammar book, and they think they figured something out. But anyway, the nephal is simply the passive, and that's important here because in a passive construction, the subject of the verb receives the action of the verb. So here we see the earth was corrupt. The earth didn't corrupt itself. The earth receives the action of corruption. Once again, man is an, is causing ecological disaster because of his sin. The sinfulness of man wreaks havoc on the earth. The earth was corrupt. It what received the action of corrupted, and it was corrupt in the sight of God. And the earth, and here it refers to those who are on the earth. The earth was filled, and here again you have a nifal, which is the passive idea. The earth was filled, receives the action of the verb, was filled with violence. And here's a word that ought to resonate with us a little bit 
I hadn't noticed this before until today. Here's what the word looks like in the Hebrew. Well, C-H-A-M-A-S. Hamas. Heard that on the news lately? means violence. That's where the terrorist group gets it's their name, Hamas. It's, it's this Hebrew root, and it means that which is ruined, spoiled, destroyed, that which is, uh, and in the Hiphil, which we'll see in a minute, this word's used uh, three times in this context. It's used uh, uh, th- two times in the passive form and once in the Hiphil, which is the causative stem, where God decides because the earth has become corrupted and become filled with violence, then God dis- decides to actively uh, be violent towards the earth and to destroy it. So Hamas has that idea of violence and destruction. And that's the cognate to the modern word used for the terrorist organization. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. And so in verse 12, Now God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Again, we have a nephal of 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 uh, shachat that God looked on the earth and it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted and there's the same word again and now it is in the hifil they had all flesh being the subject being mankind had corrupted their way emphasis on volitional responsibility that because of negative volition rejection of God and and giving way to the sin nature the entire human race had corrupted their way upon the earth, not only morally, but also genetically. So now God has to do something in order to cleanse, to purify, to judge the the earth. So God executes his plan of judgment, but first grace precedes judgment. We saw that principle last time in our overview of this section. Grace always precedes judgment. Grace precedes judgment in terms of sin. Grace precedes judgment in terms of eternal judgment because uh, grace precedes it in giving the gospel to mankind. Grace precedes judgment in the life of the believer. God does not always discipline us for our sin. He gives us grace to learn, to grow, and to uh, assimilate doctrine and to apply it and gives us enough time before he finally lowers the boom on us in divine discipline. So God gives grace before judgment and he gives it to Noah and he says to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with Hamas. The earth is filled with violence because of them. So it is a picture of an extremely violent, self-centered, destructive society. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them from the earth. And there's the hifal of Hamas, or excuse me, the hifal of Shachat, which is the word translated corrupt. And now because they have become corrupt, God is going to uh, destroy them. Genesis 6.13. So the solution, the redemption solution is given, as it were, in the form of an ark. A boat, Genesis 6.15. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And it is at this point where we have to begin to look at the details of the ark itself. The details of the ark itself and its construction. You know, most of the time when you think of an ark because of the little 
uh, pictures that you've seen drawn here and there and the pictures they use in Sunday school, we think of some small boat-like object. It was more like a barge. It was uh, rectangular. It rode uh, low in the water, and it was extremely stable. What we read here in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And the word for ark is the Hebrew word uh, tabah. T-E-V-A-H. T-E-V-A-H. Tabah. It is only used of Noah's boat and the basket that Moses was placed in when he floated on the Nile. So it is not a word for a box like the Ark of the Covenant. It is a word for a floating vessel. It is a word describing something that is designed to float on uh, the water. So Noah is to make for himself a huge, a huge floating vessel. Now one of the criticisms of this that you'll hear is that, well, no one in the ancient world ever made, uh, boats this large, but that uh, is not true. They don't find the evidence for it because they don't want to admit the evidence is there. There is evidence, if you go back far enough, that there were uh, civilizations that built extremely large boats, but they lost the technology over time. What we discover here is that the antediluvian people had a tremendous technology. They had tremendous uh, construction skills. And these were lost in the post-Diluvian environment. But God describes the ark. You're to make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, we don't know what gopher wood uh, was. It was apparently a very dense wood, a wood that would float, a wood that would not be uh, prone to any kind of, of uh, uh, corruption, that it would certainly last a year. In fact, even even lesser woods have been known to survive for many years, no matter how how wet they became. So it, it was apparently a particular kind of wood that was fitted to the task. And God says, you shall make the ark with rooms. And this is the Hebrew word ken, uh, Q-E-N. And it literally means nests, Q-E-N. So don't think of it in terms of, of like... Um, what you would see at a zoo where you have large enclosures for the animals. This was a temporary type of situation for a year. Think more in terms of intensive, of an intensive farming situation like they have today where, where they crowd animals together. It did not necessitate having a lot of room for each of these, each of these animals. It was, it was only for a year and it was very possible for, for the animals to survive. But each animal had designated areas where they had various nests or enclosures designed for each particular kind of animal. And then it was to be covered inside and out with pitch. Now, some critics have said, well, according to a creationist viewpoint, you don't have oil formed until the, after the flood. But this word isn't really pitch in terms of an oil-based or a tar-based pitch. This is, in fact, uh, you have a Hebrew construction here that you shall cover the ark. And this is the Hebrew word verb 
Kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R, which is the word that is often translated atonement, and you are to cover it inside and out with kofar. So what they covered it with was a word, K-O-P-H-E-R, which is obviously a cognate of kafar, and it has to do with some kind of waterproofing. We don't know what it is, but it would not necessarily be the kind of an oil-based or uh, or petroleum-based pitch like we are used to in a post-Diluvian environment. Whatever uh, the nature was, it would keep out the waters in a perfect way and keep everyone dry. Now, in verse 15, God goes into uh, details on the construction. This is how you shall build the ark. The length of the ark will be 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Now, one of the questions that comes along here is just how long a cubit is. The Babylonians had a royal cubit of about 19.8 inches. The Egyptians had a long cubit of 20, a little more than 20 and a half inches and a shorter cubit of 17 and a half inches. The Hebrews had a, also had a long cubit that was 20.4 inches and they had a common cubit of 17 and a half inches. And most writers believe that the cubit here was approximately 18 inches in length. It could have been a little longer. But we will uh, operate on the uh, conservative assumption, taking the shortest one, that this is a cubit of 17 and a half inches. That tells us that the ark would have been 438 feet long. Remember, a football field is 100 yards or 300 feet long. So this is like a football field in a third. This is an Extremely long um, boat. It was 72.9 feet wide. So it is, what would that be, about six times longer than it is wide. This is a long, narrow uh, boat, which is going to give it tremendous stability. It is 43 feet high. So it doesn't have a tremendous amount of depth in terms in its in the ratio with its with its height and weight. That means it would be almost impossible to capsize. Uh, there's a couple of different studies that have been done, technical studies that have been done on the ark. I brought both of these in with me. One is the classic book I referred to last time called The Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris that was originally published in the early 60s, and it was revised, I think, a couple of times after that. It first came out in 1961, and they deal with all kinds of issues related to the flood, and spent a lot of time on geology. Dr. Morris, at the time, I believe, that he that they wrote this, uh, Dr. Morris was the head of uh, the hydrology department at Virginia Polytechnic uh, Institute. Prior to that, he was professor of hydraulic engineering and chairman of the Department of Civil Engineering, 
uh, Virginia Polytechnic Institute, and before that he was down at Rice University in Houston. And he was very familiar with all of the dynamics of water and flood. Dr. Whitcomb was the head of the Old Testament Department of Grace Theological Seminary for many, many years. And so his expertise was in the technical languages, uh, in the original languages of the Old Testament. A more current study that has been published by the Institute for Creation Research, which uh, Dr. Morris founded, is a book by uh, John Wood Merapi called Noah's Ark, a Feasibility Study. That's about eight and a half by 11 pages, and it is a book of some 300 pages in length, and he goes through every possible conceivable engineering problem that you could come up with, everything from from waste management to... Uh, how you're going to feed all of these various animals, and the fact that you've got something like 241 tons of waste material every day to deal with gives you something to be concerned about. And he shows how, through using all kinds of standard uh, design construction that is used in intensive farming situations today, how it would be very easy for nine people to be able to take care of all of the logistical problems in the ark, feeding all of the animals, cleaning up after the, all of the animals, and that kind of thing. So he has a uh, very detailed study, and if you're interested in that, that's the one to go to. Now, there are some differences in the uh, way the two, the two uh, authors approach the particular subject. For example, in the older work by Whitcomb and Morris, they uh, point out, and there's pretty much agreement in terms of the size of the ark and the mass of the ark and what it could carry. Whitcomb and Morris point out that that the ark had approximately 1,400,000 cubic feet, which is equal to the volumetric capacity of 522 standard railroad livestock cars. 522 standard railroad livestock cars, and they did some computations related to uh, kinds. Remember what Noah is supposed to do here, as we'll see, is to take two of every kind and seven of every clean kind. Now, there aren't that many animals that were considered clean. They divided the hoof, they chewed the cud, uh, and they were domestic. So even though a giraffe divides the hoof and and choose a cut, it wouldn't be considered a clean animal. And there were only a couple of kinds of clean birds. These were domestic animals and animals that were suitable for sacrifice. Uh, and this would have only uh, amounted to probably no more than several hundred animals. The rest would come under the category of, of unclean. And there would only be two of those. Now, in, in Whitcomb and Morris's book, because that was written at a time when there was tremendous attack on the concept of a universal flood and that this was to be taken literally. And so Whitcomb and Morris bent over backwards at, at making as conservative estimates as they could uh, and always assuming there were more animals, larger animals, things of that nature. And so Whitcomb and Morris argued that the, that the average size of, of, an, of the animals would be a little bit smaller than your standard sheep. And they argued when trying to define the biblical word kind, see, 
that's not a technical scientific term. When you study biology, you talked about species and genus and family, but you didn't ever hear them stand up there and say how many kinds there were. Well, we don't know how many kinds they were, but uh, Morris and Whitcomb argue that on the basis of kinds, somewhere between, uh, somewhere in the order of around the uh, genus uh, would be where, where they would locate it. And so they end up arguing that there were around 75,000 animals on the ark. And on the basis of their studies, they would say that since it is known that about 240 sheep can be transported in one stock car, remember the volume capacity is 522 and the ark had three floors on it, that a total of over 125,000 sheep could have been carried in the ark. So if only 75,000 animals are on the ark, then according to their studies, only half of the ark would be taken up by the animals. The other half would be taken up by water supply, food, other things that of that nature, living quarters for Noah and his family. However, Wood Merapi, in his discussion, argues very convincingly that kind is more on uh what we would call or what science calls the family level. This means you have would have even fewer animals on the ark. And he takes a figure of only 16,000 animals on the ark, in which case only about a quarter of the ark was taken up by animals. And he also goes through and cites numerous studies, uh, zo- zoological studies and biological studies, uh, both extinct and uh, ex- extinct and extant uh, animals, and he argues that the median animal would have been the size of a small rat, not a small sheep. So even though you have large animals, uh, pachyderms, uh, dinosaurs, animals of that nature, the vast majority aren't that aren't that large. So he argues that they're about the size of a small rat, and that means that there would be uh, only about 25% of the ark would be taken up by the animals themselves. So there's a number of different ways to handle this. Now, according to Wood Merapi, the ark had a 6,000-ton mass with a cargo capacity of 15,000 tons. Incidentally, no um, no ocean-going vessel was built that was as large as the ark until 1858. So this was an extremely large vessel. However, there is evidence that there were some ancient vessels that were that large. A Greek writer by the name of Moschion speaks of a ship named the Syracusia that had a uh, carrying capacity of 4,000 tons of cargo. And the pre-modern Chinese uh, built huge wooden ships several thousand years ago. In fact, in the 15th century, they had seagoing junks uh, during the time of Cheng Ho that were almost the size of the ark. And the Chinese had a tremendous ability to construct things that were very sturdy. There were they built several pagodas that were over 120 feet in height. Remember, the ark is only 45 feet in height. They built various uh, pagodas over 120 feet in height that have withstood a 1,000 years of extremely harsh winds and weather. 
So anyhow, he goes through one one detail study after another to demonstrate that on the basis of known technology, even fairly primitive technology, technology that was available in the Middle Ages, that it was very possible that nine people could take take care of 16,000 animals on a ship of this size and they could construct a ship of that size. And uh, this is the kind of work that needs to be done in order to demonstrate that, that the Bible is not just giving some sort of legend or myth, but that this is dealing with actual history. Well, the description of the ark is given. We have its its height and its its width and its depth. And according to Wood Merapi, this means that the ark could handle uh, waves at least 100 to 120 feet in height without uh, capsizing. Genesis 6.16, the ark had a ventilation system. There was a window. Most people picture this as some sort of a window that extended or vent or opening that was covered that extended the entire length of the ark from front to rear that uh, God says you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark one way in, set the door of the ark in the side of it, and you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verse 17, Behold, I even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Notice the universals here. To destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall Perish. So this is not some limited local flood like some people want to suggest. Then in verse 18, we have our first use of the word berit in the Hebrew. That's the word covenant. We will not discuss the significance of covenant till we get to the end of chapter 9 when God establishes and outlines the covenant. But this is the first use of the covenant, but not the first covenant. As I pointed out many times, you have an initial covenant, the creation covenant, between God and Adam in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. You have a revision of that covenant, which we call the Adamic covenant, in the curse of Genesis uh, 3, 14 and following. And here you have God establishing another covenant with Noah. So the idea of a covenant isn't new, but the use of the word is, uh, is first. This is the first use of that word berit in this particular passage. God promises, Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So this is uh, two of every kind, and we don't know how many animals that would be or just exactly what the kind was, but as I said, it's somewhere between 16 and 70, 16,000 to 75,000 animals, and there was plenty of room on the ark for all of those animals. Then in verse 20, God says, of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing after the ground, Every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. So God will bring them over this period of time. Now people say, well, you know, how do they get there from all over the earth? Well, we don't know what the animal distribution was at that time, and there probably wasn't even a division of the continents as we have today. Continental drift was probably the result of the geologic upheaval of the flood. 
And so the animals could all come. But remember, it's every kind, not every species. So therefore, God is going to be bring all of these animals to Noah. Now, of course, God could have made this possible. He could have performed all kinds of different miracles to feed the animals, to keep them alive, and all of that. But from what we know of just normal studies in ranching and farming and uh, zoo operations, nine people could... are. Um, Eight people could keep these animals alive throughout this entire process. Eight people could do it just on the basis of standard technology. So uh, the passage concludes, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. So he follows God's commands. It took him probably uh, the better part of that hundred years to build the ark. Maybe... It took him long. It didn't take him very long. Uh, some people have said, "Well, how did Noah and his sons? You know, how did how did the four of them build an ark this size? Uh, that's a l- tremendous number of work with primitive tools. Number one, we don't know the tools were primitive, and number two, there's nothing in the text that says he couldn't hire out the work. He could have hired all kinds of people to do the work, and they could have built the ark in a year or two. But he spent, I believe, he spent the majority of that time traveling the world." proclaiming the gospel, one last message of grace before God's judgment. Grace always precedes judgment, and it's interesting that the flood is always used as an analogy to the coming judgment of the tribulation and the coming of Jesus Christ at the second coming. Almost every New Testament passage that references the ark and references the Noahic flood is used to teach something about the second coming of Christ and the judgment during the tribulation period. So it is a message for our time, and I would not be a bit surprised. I always thought that uh, we might discover the remains of Noah's Ark on Ararat. I've read a lot of a lot of the stories. I'm sure some of you have as well. There's no sure and certain evidence that it's been found. There seems to be at times, but it's it's never been finalized. I've talked to several people who have been on Ararat searching for the ark at different times. One of the men who was a a mentor for me when I was in high school was one of the first men in the 70s to put together an expedition to go. And unfortunately, uh, he had a malignant brain tumor and he never was able to make that trip. But uh, we may discover it, and I always thought that would be something ironic in God's plan to discover the ark as one last evidence of God's judgment in the past as an evidence of condemnation to this generation just before the rapture. But who knows? Maybe we'll discover it. Maybe we won't. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to be reminded that you do interfere in human history. You do judge man for sin, but you are also a gracious God who has provided a perfect deliverance, perfect salvation. And just as there was only one way of deliverance, one way of salvation during the time of Noah, so there is one, only one uh, way of salvation today, and that is through faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for the things that we studied tonight as they encourage us in your faithfulness, your power, your ability to, to deliver us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.